You know, it's a big, long name. And in today's world, we, we like to have short names, but you know, the reality is that every church should have this name. And we're going to look at this a little bit this morning, but because the reality is that God never designed the church to be a place where you gather and settle. He, he designed the church to be a, a group of people that came here on a Sunday to be filled up with the Word of God so that they could go out into the nations Amen. and take the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. Yes. And the, 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 the problem with today's church is that we have become a gathering place and not a scattering place. And no wonder God is starting to scatter the nations. Amen. We're watching it before our very eyes. In fact, this is church is a, is a reality of the nations being scattered. But you know what? We need to be careful that we don't become settled even in our scattered place. That as we scatter, we continue to scatter because... And we'll look at this a little bit later. I'm getting into my message already. But it's, it's this idea that we are sojourners. We are nomads. We are pilgrims in this earth. This earth is not our home. As, and, and Pastor Bank was just sharing with me that, uh, uh, I didn't hear this, but Pope Francis this week mentioned that, that uh, you know, the, the building in Philadelphia was a beautiful building, but we should not be building walls between us and the people. We should be knocking the walls down and being among the people. And we'll come back to that a little bit later. But all that to say, just a, what a privilege to be with the World Outreach Church for All Nations this Sunday. And I've been looking forward to this. I, I, it, with a little bit of fear and trepidation, I must admit. You know, I, you've already picked up that I'm not from America, I think. Okay? <laughs> Any guesses where I'm from? Australia. That's not too bad. Sorry? Irish, okay. As long as you didn't say English, you're okay. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm saved by grace, so I, I show grace to the English. You, you know, we're very, we're very proud of what we did in Ireland. We built the Titanic, you know, that big ship. And uh, we built that thing. We said even God couldn't sink it. Yes. Right? But we made our first mistake. We give it to the English to look after. <laughs> God bless the English. <laughs> if you're from England, I, I bless you. I'm, I'm kidding. I really am. Uh, but it, it's a privilege. No, I, I was just saying that, I, you know, I've been looking forward to this with a little bit of fear and trepidation because, you know, I, I, some, I believe in God's sovereignty and I believe in his omnipotence. He's all powerful and he can do whatever he likes and his power never runs out, okay? But somehow when he was creating the Irish alongside those from the African background. Somehow, I think the Irish came after the Africans, somehow in, in, the, the, in, the, in the created order, and God ran out of things like passion, uh, enthusiasm, um, move, ability to move when you sing. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's just like, oh my goodness, uh, Pastor Bank, you want me to come and speak to your people, and I'm sure they're used to lots of enthusiasm and excitement and, and energy. And if you would come to an Irish church, I mean, you were saying this morning about the group, if you came to our praise band in our church in Northern Ireland, you would probably have to go up and check their pulses to see if they were still alive. It's, uh, uh, well, I, I don't know. We, we, he somehow left that out of the Irish people. So please forgive me this morning. I, I, cannot, I cannot necessarily muster that up too much, but I will try my best. And uh, I pray that the Holy Spirit will, will stir your heart. And he will, I believe, through the word of God this morning. 
Before I go any further, I don't know, if, is there a video ready? Somewhere there's a video guy. If you can play the video and we'll watch the video and then I'll come by. There's some background knowledge. Technology is always a wonderful thing when it works, and uh, appreciate you guys for working on it. One of the, the, the question I want to ask this morning, as we we uh, as we speak, and whenever the video gets ready, we'll play it. Um, what is a missionary? When you hear the term missionary, what comes to mind? Missionary material. My idea of a missionary is probably a white Caucasian that's probably going into the middle of Africa to God, send me with a long want. dress. But in my mind, I was thinking details and a big Bible, and I don't fit that description. It's not part of my profile. But I've always said to God, send me anywhere you want. But in my mind, I was thinking five-star gold crown, white beach. So many people say no because the enemy puts this information in front of them. But what I can actually share from my own testimony, that your life begins when you say yes and when you step out. I grew up in uh, London. My passion is I love traveling. My parents are from uh, the islands, Jamaica, and I just loved uh, vacationing in, in uh, the Caribbean. And so it was when I was in the Caribbean that I heard about a cruise liner that sold books. And so I thought, okay, this has to be of God. When I looked into this uh, missions organization of a ship, it wasn't a cruise liner, it was a missionary ship. And they invited me for um, just an open day. I had no intention to go, but out of curiosity, I went. Uh, they started to show the work that they would be doing, and I just thought, this is not for me. You had to commit for two years. And I thought, absolutely no way. I remember saying to myself, God, I could do this. I probably could do this for a week. And it was like, right at that moment, I felt the Holy Spirit said to me, I gave my life for you when you are quibbling about two years. And it was at that point I knew God wanted me to go. All the things that I thought I would never have or receive again, God has blessed me a hundredfold. And I said, two years and not a day more. Today, I think it's 14 years. I said yes, and in saying yes, God has just turned my life upside down, and he has answered every desire of my heart, and I have absolutely no regrets.
Thanks, guys. Thanks for working on that. Missionary. Maureen had her idea of what a missionary was, and God changed that. You know, growing up on the cold winter nights in Ireland, my parents would gather my three siblings and I around the fireplace, and they would read the scriptures, and then at the end they would read a chapter out of a missionary story to us. And it was there in those evenings we got to read of people like William Carey, uh, that young man from the UK who stood up and said he wanted to go to India. And the elders of the church said, sit down, young man, if God's going to reach the heathen, he'll do it himself. William Carey got up out of that meeting and he went to India anyway. And he reached the people of the subcontinent. Adnaram Judson, one of the first missionaries from America. Off he went to the subcontinent as well. Ended up in Burma, actually, where Pastor Banks is going to be soon, and Sharon. And uh, there he went. He sailed up the Irrawaddy River into Rangoon, the ancient city. And under the shadows of the pagodas, the Buddhist temples, he preached the gospel and translated the scripture. And today, when you go to Burma, you'll still be able to read the Bible that Adoniram Judson translated into the Burmese language. Mary Slessor, Scottish, young Scottish lady who went into the interior of Africa and by canoe went up into the rivers, into the uh, tribes of African interior, and took with her the gospel where nobody else was willing to go, broke down the superstitions of the tribal leaders and saw transformation take place. We didn't have a TV in our house, so these men and women became our movie nights. These stories became our movies nights, and these men and women became our heroes as we were growing up. And many more that came after them who transformed uh, communities, transformed lives with the gospel of Jesus Christ as they went and sacrificed everything to go. God used them mightily. And today, the church, in many of the places where they went, is strong and established. In fact, the church in many of these places is now at a place where they're actually sending their own workers to go to the nations. So the leader of OM's work in Burma is a Burmese. The leader of our work in Bangladesh is from Bangladesh. And Pakistan is from Pakistan. And India is from India. God has established the church in such a way through these men and women who were faithful to the cause of the gospel that they're now sending their own workers. And that one of the things we want to be involved in in OM is to help empower these churches to go in a sustainable way to reach the nations. God has done amazing things, but you know what? All is not well. All is not well. You see, when I started missions, as we call it, back in 1988, there were 1.5 billion people in the world who had never heard the gospel for the first time. Do you know how many there are in the world today? After how many years that is? 27 years of, of effort. The figure stands somewhere between 2.5 and 2.7 billion. So after all of the money we've spent, after all of the people who've given up their life to go with the gospel, we're going backwards. There are more unreached in our world today than there was when I started. In fact, there are more unreached in our world today than there was yesterday. Every day, 57,000 people are added to the figure of unreached in our world. 57,000. More unreached. So by the time we get to 2050, the figure of unreached in our world, recent research tells us, is going to be over 3 billion. So folks, what we're doing 
is not as effective as we might like it to be. And this was a reality that, that came to my mind recently. And I was standing on top of a tower in Saudi Arabia. And I must say, I have never in my 13 years in being in the U.S., I've never ever been in a church that has paused to pray for the nations like you do. And I thank God for that. And certainly never for Saudi Arabia. That touched me this morning. I was standing on top of what they call the Kingdom Tower in the, in the capital city of Riyadh in Saudi Arabia and, and looking out over a city with six million people in it. As far as the eye could see were, were sandy brown buildings dotted with minarets from the mosques. And beyond that was the desert. But down below me, as far as the eye could see, were six million people. And our leader from that part of the world turned to me and he said, Andrew, as far as we know, there are no believers, no believers in this city. Six million people. The reality is that 85% of Muslims do not know a Christian. Most of them have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there's very few intending to tell them. Two years ago, I was driving through a, a, a town in Zambia. It was a bit of a, a slum area. I was in an old beat-up Toyota Hyas van, and I was being taken around by our leader in that part of the world, and we were bumping along what they called Main Street of this town. Along each side of the street were women selling tomatoes. Every stall had tomatoes in it. They must have liked tomatoes. <laughs> and, and behind that were the bars. Loud music, the smell of stale alcohol was wafting from it. And somehow the men seemed to think that this was their sole role in life, to keep these bars open. And they would be lying around either on the floor or on old plastic chairs, drunk in the middle of the day. I remember as we were driving along that, that bumpy, dusty road, I, was, I saw some children playing. And I don't know why, because I've been in many, many countries now. There's one little girl that caught my eye, and she had braids in her hair. You, you can picture it. She had multiple braids, and then there were multiple beads on every braid. And I had seen that before, so there's nothing unique about that. She was wearing a, a, a dress that had polka dots, multiple multicolored polka dots on it. Nothing unique about that. But somehow my eyes caught her eyes. And I guess she saw this white guy driving through her town, which was a little unique. And uh, her, her eyes were transfixed in my eyes. And as we were approaching her, I, I, I started to see that, that somehow she must have fallen during the day and the tears had cut a track through the dust in her face, which only made her more beautiful. And I remember as my eyes, literally as she was going by the car, my eyes were fixed on her and her beauty as this little child in a village in Africa. Our, my leader turned to me and he said, Andrew, I need you to know that every young girl in this village will be raped by the time they're 10 years old. And it was like my heart snapped a picture, a photograph, and, and filed it away. And every time I think of that, it breaks my heart. Every time I think of standing on top of that tower and hearing there's no known, there are no known believers in this city of six million, that picture gets pulled out and it breaks my heart. We're living in a broken world 
We're living in a world where 2.5 to 2.7 billion people have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ once. And we're living in a world where over a billion people live in abject poverty with no access to education, no access to medical care, clean water, and many of them going to bed hungry every day. In a world where there are tens of millions of slaves, about two years ago we talked about 2.7 million. Then at the beginning of 2014, or 2014, yes, they said, oh, we, we calculated it wrong. We think there's about 32 million. By the time we got to November, they, they had done some more research and they said, well, actually, it's probably 37 million. And then an Indian won the Nobel Peace Prize for work among the underprivileged children in India. And in his acceptance speech, he said there was at least 60 million child slaves in India alone. The reality of slavery is that no government is going to admit to the problem. And we live in, a, we live in an age when there are more slaves alive today than there has ever been in the whole history of the world combined. Under our watch church, the unreached figure is growing. Slavery is in existence like it's never been before. In the last three decades, poverty in Africa has doubled the number of people living in poverty. On our watch, in an age when the church has more money, more people, more technology than it's ever had in its history, yet we're going backwards in all of these figures. And I don't know about you, but that is not okay. That breaks my heart. Because we were not put on this earth to simply come into these nice buildings and sing really nice songs and dance around and be happy so that we could walk out of these buildings and be happy. That's certainly part of it. God put us in this earth for something completely different. And this is what I want to talk on this morning. I believe that this wonderful missions model that we've had for 200 years where people have left their homeland and they've gone to do something different in another land to share the gospel is, 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 is it's not that it's a wrong model, but it's not the only model. In fact, it's probably a small part of the model that God had intended for his people. And that's what I want to look at this morning. Because if we keep doing what we've always done, these figures are just going to continue to grow. And the very thing that God put us in this earth to do, we're leaving behind. You know, and the, and the, 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 the incredible thing is this, is that when we look at the church here in America, and I'm now an American citizen, so I, I put myself in that, that uh, group as well, is that it, every statistic that's coming out of the American church tells me that we really don't care. You say, well, Andrew, that's not really fair, is it? You're in the American church after all. Well, let me tell you a few more statistics. That over 90% of American workers, Christian workers, are here in the U.S. Over 90% of those that we say are in full-time Christian service are, are focused here in the U.S. among 4% of the world's population. Okay? Does that sound fair? And of the few workers that we send outside of the country, okay, there's 1.6 million full-time Christian workers in the U.S., right? Or, I'm sorry, there's 1.6 million American full-time Christian workers. Out of the 1.6 million full-time Christian workers, 
we have less than 10,000 of them focused on reaching the unreached. Does that sound fair? The rest of us are focused on this 4% of the world's population when 2.7 billion have yet to hear the gospel and we, we you know, give a few thousand to that. And as if that wasn't bad enough, when it comes to money, it, it, it's, it looks even worse. American Christians only give 2% of their income, on average, to Christian work. I was, had the privilege of going to a game at Auburn yesterday. Somebody give me tickets. And I went down to see that incredible cathedral to the God of sport. <laughs> it was interesting. I went with a Canadian and a Namibian, right? And my son, who was born in Singapore, by the way. So we were this international bunch going to this American football game, trying to explain the game to each other. Uh, thankfully, some, some man in front of us turned around and said, are you guys, you guys aren't from around here, are you? <laughs> anyway, but they had just built a jumbotron at Auburn State, Auburn University, a jumbotron, which is a massive big screen, and they give some statistics of how much, I think it's bigger than two basketball courts, this screen, right? $13.7 million they spent on this thing so that I could watch the game backward, back again while I'm sitting there and I can watch advertisements. 13 and, and then they went through this list of donors that would give 100,000 or more or a million or more. And I said to my, one of my coworkers, I take their names. <laughs> but I, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, how many dollars are given to this opulent place when, and many of them, I'm sure, were Christians that, that gave. When we give 2% of our income to Christian work, so 2% is the new 10%. Out of that 2%, 5% leaves the U.S. Okay? So 5% of 2% leaves the U.S. to go to mission work. Out of that 5%, 1% goes towards the unreached, reaching the unreached with the gospel. So all of those things I just described, the unreached, the marginalized people in our world, we're giving 1% of 5% of 2% of our income to do something about. No wonder I say when it comes to that, this issue that we're facing in the world that the American church doesn't seem to care. Something is horribly wrong with this picture. In fact, I believe we have the wrong picture, and I'm going to have to move a little quicker here. You know, I, growing up uh, as a family, when Anna and Daniel were very young, jigsaws were something, or puzzles, jigsaw puzzles, we call them jigsaws in, in the UK. Uh, puzzles were uh, something we used to do quite a bit of, and the first puzzle we did was a Winnie the Pooh puzzle, you know, 20 pieces, big pieces. And, uh, you know, it's, it always amazes me how many times a roll can do the same puzzle and still get excited when they see Winnie and Rabbit and, uh, uh, you know, come together in this. It was something we always enjoyed to do. And as, we got, as the kids got older, we went to bigger jigsaws and, um, until we got to the 1,000-piece puzzle. And we would so often at Christmas time, we would pull out a, a jigsaw puzzle to do. But something became very uh, clear to me whenever we would do those jigsaws, especially the big puzzles together. A few points I wanted to bring out, because in the context of getting the right picture, first of all, it is impossible to build a, the puzzle 
until every piece was turned the right way up. And it will be impossible for you to get into the picture, a great, great picture that God has for this world and your life until your life is turned the right way up. And you understand your true identity as a follower of Jesus. Not what the world wants you to be, but what God intended you to be. And so many people are, so many of us are living our lives with our life the wrong way up. And we're trying to make sense of it. And we will never make sense of it until we turn that piece of the puzzle, our life, the right way up. And then we can start to find our place in the big picture. Secondly, it was really hard, if not impossible, to build a jigsaw if you're not able to see the picture on the box. What came first? The puzzle piece or the picture? The picture came first. The manufacturer got a picture, he put some card behind it, and then he cut it up into little pieces. And God had a great picture, a great plan for this world. And then he designed a bunch of pieces, and that's you and I, to fit in this picture. And until we understand the big picture of God's plan and purposes for this earth and fit ourselves into that, we will never find our place in this world. And too many people are trying to fit their piece in the wrong jigsaw puzzle. And it's never going to fit. Thirdly, every piece has a place and was essential to the completion of the puzzle. You ask me, why do I think the unreached is going, that the number of unreached is growing? Why do I think the, no, the number of people living in abject poverty in Africa has doubled in three decades? Why do we think that slavery is greater than it's ever been in the history of the world? Because the church of Jesus Christ, the individuals in the church of Jesus Christ, has not understood their place in the big picture of God. And there are huge gaps because we're not stepping up. Then fourthly, on its own, a puzzle piece is hard to describe, and it makes little sense. The importance and beauty of each piece was only fully understood and realized when it was added to the big picture. No one ever looks at a single piece of a jigsaw and thinks, wow, isn't that beautiful? That's a really cool piece. Or frames in, in, in a a picture frame, a single piece of a jigsaw and hangs it on their wall. You cannot begin to know the nature or beauty of the big picture by a single piece of the jigsaw. Only when it's put in its place with all the other pieces will you know the big picture. And that's the beauty of the church. And whenever pieces decide, well, I'm not going to fit into that picture or I'm going to try and fit into another picture or they're, they're not involved in putting themselves into the picture, then the church is not living up to its potential. And so many, so many of us are trying to find fulfillment, beauty, satisfaction, significance on our own. With our own ambitions, our own hopes, our own dreams, our own plans. And we'll never find it because we're not fitting into the big picture of God. So what is the big picture of God? What's God's purpose and plan for this earth? Well, we have to go back to the beginning. But you know what? The beginning is not in Genesis. The beginning, at least one 
telling of the beginning is in Ephesians 1. If you want to turn with me to Ephesians 1, and chapter, chapter 1 and verse 3, Paul, in this incredible book, is, is sharing with the Ephesians who they are in Christ. And let me jump in at verse 3. He says this, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Why? Because we are united with Christ. And listen to this. Even before he made the world. Okay? So we're, we're, we're way before the beginning here. Another translation, I think it's the King James, says this, before he laid the foundations of the earth. So before God put an atom in place, before he even put the very foundations of the earth, the universe in place, he, he did something else. And this is the key to understanding the big picture of God. What did he do? God loved us. God loved us. How is that possible? We weren't even in existence. The earth wasn't even made. The universe wasn't even in place. But God loved us. Amen. This is a hint. This is an indicator of what God's big picture and plan for this universe, this earth, is all about. God loved us. What else did he do? He chose us in Christ. Wow. God chose you. And in fact, that word love also speaks of choice. The agape love of God. In other words, God didn't love us because of the good things we were going to do. He didn't love us because we were even lovable. He loved us because he chose to love us. He looked at us and said, I want to love Andrew. I want to love Bank. I want to love Sharon. And nothing's going to change that because I chose to do this. And he chose us in Christ. What? To be holy. To be set apart. To be sanctified. And without fault in his eyes. God decided that before he even put an atom in place. I was in Switzerland recently, just a couple of weeks ago. And I had the privilege of staying in a very beautiful place. Not the place itself, it was a Bible school. And Bible schools are ten, tend to be a little rustic, you know. It was a little rustic. But when I pulled my blinds back, I could see the agar. That, that famous mountain. And there were, below it was a lake and rolling green hills. It was absolutely beautiful. But you know what? My amazement, my awe at the creation of God in mountains and lakes and trees and forests and green hills. That was, an, that was like an afterthought. It was, that had to happen to make his love for me possible. Because after he loved me, he had to make a place for me to live so that I could exist and be a recipient of that love. And so all of what we see around us, no matter how amazing it looks, was put in place simply for us to exist, to be part of the family of God and to worship Him and to love Him. Amen. Amen. And you know, another thing is, it's only a reflection. No matter how amazing it looks, and it was amazing, it's only a reflection. And we see through a, dark, a glass darkly. God is much more awesome than the, the mountains of Switzerland. He is much more amazing than that. But let me get back to the passage. God loved us and he chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his life. Listen to this. 
God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family. Is this not exciting? That God chose in advance to love me, to accept me, not just as an outsider who would remain an outsider, but he would ad- chose to adopt me into his own family. He would make me his son. He would make you his daughter. He would make you his son. Joint heirs with Jesus Christ. By bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. And then listen to this. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. It gave him great pleasure. God took great pleasure in the timelessness of eternity when nothing existed, only God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, living in perfect harmony, living in unity together, living in community together, lacking in nothing, lacking not in power, lacking not in glory, lacking not in love. He didn't need to create anything to give him more glory. He didn't need to create the the mountains in Switzerland to give him more glory. He had all the glory he could ever have living in that existence. He decided in advance to love me, to love you. He decided in advance to choose us to be his own, to adopt us into his family. Knowing, Jesus the Son, knowing that, well, now I'm going to have heirs to this glory. The glory is not only going to be mine, but I'm going to share this glory with creation. Paul says in Romans 8, Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. That's just mind-blowing right there, and we have a whole sermon series on its own. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. God created humanity to share in his glory. That's why he had to make us in his own image. Out of all of creation, he made us in his own image. Everything else is not in the image of God. He he made us in his own image so that we could share in his glory. Share that relationship. God created us, and don't miss this, God created us for relationship. To be loved by him, to love him. To be chosen by him, to choose him. To be adopted into his family and live in the reality of what that means to share in his glory. St. Augustine says this, If you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. I meet many restless people. Many people that are searching for significance, for, for hope, and they call themselves Christians. And I believe a big part of it is this, is that we're looking for hope, we're looking for rest in all the wrong places. Our hearts are restless until they find the rest in you. God created the universes, the universe with their billions of stars and a little ball called earth so that we could exist because he wanted to love us. He wanted to have us in his family. He wanted us to have a relationship with us and to share in his glory. Paul goes on in Ephesians 2. To say this, 9 and 10, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. There's that advance for us to do coming back again. In advance, God chose to love us and adopt us into his family. 
in advance he prepared good works for us to do before the foundations of the earth. God thought of what he wanted you to do and then he made you accordingly. So God has made you for good works. And so we see in Ephesians itself that God not only created us to have a relationship with him, he created us to have a role with him. God didn't just create us to share in his glory, he created us to share his glory. In John 17, Jesus says this, we're part of the family, remember, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Here's our co-heir talking about his role while he was in this earth. He said, I, to the Father, I brought glory to you on earth by completing the work you give, us to, give me to do. I brought you glory on earth, Father, by completing the work you give me to do. Jesus, the Son of God, our co-heir, said, I brought God glory by completing the work he gave me to do on this earth. Paul is telling us we were created for good works. In doing those good works, we bring glory to the Father. We share his glory. Jesus, in chapter 16 of John, said, When the Spirit... The Holy Spirit, the third part of the Trinity comes. He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, but will tell you what he has heard. He will tell you about the future. He will bring me glory by telling you whatever he receives from me. So we were brought into this family, the family of God, the community of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit made in that image. And in that, we have the relationship with God, but we also have this role because the Spirit had a role. The Spirit did whatever the Son told Him to do. And in doing what the Son told Him to do, He brought the, the, the Father, the Son, glory. What did the Son do? The Son did whatever the Father told Him to do. And in doing that, He brought glory to the Father. Well, what do you think our role is? To do whatever we are told to do by the Spirit of God. And in doing so, we bring glory to God. And so God created this earth, the universe, with the earth in it. So that he could have a relationship with a people who he would choose to love and bring into his family. And whom he would give a role to, to bring glory to him by doing the work he has laid out for them on this earth. The Westminster Catechism says man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is our reason for being. And if we try to make our purpose anything different on this earth, we will miss the very reason for our existence. And you see, here's the issue I have with the model of missions we've followed for 200 years. We have made missions all about calling. We are not called to the purposes of God. We are made for the purposes of God. We are not called to the purposes of God. We are made for the purposes of God. No one is exempt. You don't delegate the purposes of God to a few pastors and missionaries. That's very good, man. The purposes of God are for every created human being. And until the church of Jesus Christ rises up and takes their responsibility in that and finds their peace in that great picture of God and seeks to live out that peace, we will not see 
a change in the statistics I shared earlier. If we are to engage the whole world, we will need the whole church. When God had these Adam and Eve standing there in their naked innocence in the Garden of Eden, and they had this, had this uh, conversation as the Godhead before time existed, before the foundations of the earth would be made. They, were, they said, let us, let us make man in our own image. Let's make sure we love them. We're going to choose to love them. We're going to choose to invite them into our family. We're going to give them a role just like we have roles. They're going to have a role. They're going to do good works, but we've already prepared for them. And, and in doing so, they're going to bring us glory. And, and, and now we've created the universe and we've got the earth and we've got everything made and Let's, let's bring the pinnacle of our creation into the picture. And what does he say to them? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, govern it. I grew up in Ireland. If you know anything about Ireland, we have lots of children. I used to think that that whole was all about having babies. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And I tell you what, the Irish were pretty good at that. But that's not what it's about. It's truly about procreation, yes, in there. But here's what I believe God was saying to his creation. I have made you in my own image. I have made you for relationship. And I have given you a role to fill the earth with my glory. You're a reflection of my glory and goodness because you're made in my image and I've got good works for you to do while you're on this earth and I, my desire is that the whole earth be filled with the knowledge of my glory. Now, go be fruitful. Go make more of, of these reflections of me. Go make many more until the whole earth is filled with people who reflect my glory and goodness. And you know the story, sin entered the world, the wheels came off, God was even sorry that he made the whole thing. We come to Noah, God found one man that was righteous, the Bible tells us. One man who was still living out in relationship with God, reflecting his glory and goodness, doing the good works that God had intended him to do. And he said to Noah, build a boat. And you know the story, whenever the flood subsided, God came to Noah. And what did God say to Noah? This man who was living out his true image as a reflection of God's glory and goodness, he said to Noah, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. In other words, Noah, would you go, now we're going to start all over again, would you go and make more of these people? I've kept you aside with your family because you were doing it. Now will you go make more of these people who are doing the same thing, being fruitful, multiply, filling the earth? And off Noah went. Now we know that sin entered, or sin was there, and the wheels came off again. But then there came a day when God sent someone into the world. He wasn't going to judge the world like that again, but he sent his own son into the world to live a perfect life, to die a sinless death, to rise again, to set the, the nations free. And that son of God, God himself in the flesh, 
stood on a mountain. Instead of saying, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, he put it a different way this time, but it means the same thing. He said, go make disciples of all nations. In other words, go and make more of these people that are reflecting my glory and goodness. Teach them everything I've taught you. In other words, to, re to multiply themselves. And that's the mandate he's given to humanity in the beginning and to the church in these latter days. And that is what we're to be about on this earth. I think one of our issues in the church today is that we've got way too fond of living on earth. We've got way too involved in making this our place of residence. In the Hall of Fame in Hebrews 11, it talks about all these men and women of the Old Testament. And the writer says this, all these people died still believing what God had promised them. They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it all from a distance and welcomed it. Listen to this. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. Obviously, people who say such things, this is still the scriptures, by the way. Obviously, people who say such things are looking forward to a country they can call their own. If they had longed for the country they came from, they would have gone back. But they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. So in other words, the writer was saying this, that the peop these people of God did not see this earth as their physical location, their physical heritage, inheritance. They saw themselves as sojourners or people of no fixed abode who would keep moving around, nomads. They were looking for, like, like Abraham, a place, who, a city whose builder and maker was God. And the Hebrew writer says this, that is why God is not ashamed to be called their God. Sometimes I wonder if the reverse of that is true. And when God looks at the American church, what does he think? If he is not ashamed to be called the God of those who do not see the earth as their physical home and the place where they're going to put down so strong a roots that they will never budge, that they will hold on to their possessions, that possessions will become something more important to them than the purposes of God, that their stability on this earth will become more important to them than the purposes of God. How does God feel? If he's not ashamed by, to call the people who are sojourners and nomads, he's not ashamed to be called their God. Is he ashamed to be called the God of those who do the opposite? I don't know. But I do know this. That God is jealous for his glory. And God desires that the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of his glory. Amen. And that God put us in this earth to do exactly that. And all throughout scripture, from the first time he gave that mandate, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, he constantly scattered his people throughout the earth. If you look at every major civilization that we read about in scripture, God scattered his people into it. Sometimes it was because they weren't living in relationship 
And he pushed them out because he knew if they get put into an uncomfortable place, they will come back to me. And they did. And in the New Testament, they, he pushed them out because they were not fulfilling the other aspect of their created meaning. And that was to share his glory with people, the world. And he scattered them into to Egypt. And Joseph was there. And Joseph changed the heart of a king because he lived his life as unto the purposes of God. As did Moses. Then they were scattered into Assyria, into Babylon. And you come across young Daniel. This young man who was brought up in Judah, one of the brightest and best, carried off into Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar put him, along with a few other, into the best university in Babylon. And they were trained by the best professors in Babylon. And at the end of the course, King Nebuchadnezzar came for the final exam himself. And he questioned Daniel and his three friends along with the other graduating class. And at the end of the graduating process, he, he, he said this to all of the people. He said this about Daniel, who had purposed in his heart a few verses before that he would not defile himself, that he was going to live for the purposes of God in Babylon. He says of this about Daniel and his three friends. They were ten times better than anyone else in the kingdom in matters of wisdom and the interpretation of dreams. And as you follow the story of Daniel, Daniel lived his life as unto the Lord, not as a missionary, but as a governor in Babylon. I mean, that's like a Christian going to Saudi Arabia and being made a leader in a, in a state or a province of Saudi Arabia. Daniel lived that out and he changed the heart of Nebuchadnezzar. God changed his heart through Daniel's witness. And Darius who came after him. In fact, Daniel was governor in Babylon through three emperors, three empires that, that existed during that time. God used him in a mighty way. Story after story, Esther, David the king, Esther the queen, these men and women that God raised up. And then when you come into the New Testament, and with this I close, when you come into the New Testament and, and, and Jesus told the disciples, okay guys, it's time to go. Make disciples of all nations. I've taught you a lot. Go teach other people. Will you go and take my glory to the nations? And of course they didn't. They stayed. And then the persecution of Stephen came. And Luke tells us in Acts, he said this, and after Stephen was killed, the believers scattered around the provinces of Judea and Samaria. And it says this, and as they went, they preached the gospel wherever they went. Were they missionaries like Adoniram Judson and William Carey? No. They were people in business. They were carpenters. They were shopkeepers. They were wives. They were husbands. They were people living in neighborhoods. Wherever they went and made their new home, out of fear of persecution, they preached the gospel. And as they did, people were added to their number every day. In fact, when Paul got as far as Antioch on his missionary journey, what did he find? The church was already there. When he went to Rome many years later, what did he find? The church was already there. He talked about the reliable men and women who had who had gone out, most of them out of fear of persecution. 
that would come a little later in AD 70. They scattered over the known world, and with them they took the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know, that Roman Empire that persecuted, persecuted them in AD 70 for the great fire in Rome, three, within 300 years, it labeled itself as a Christian empire. Why? Because the Christians had scattered throughout the empire, and wherever they went, they preached the gospel of Jesus Christ in the marketplaces, in the neighborhoods, in the communities. And every day, people were added to their number as a result. And so I'll, I'll finish as I began. That God never intended the church to be a place where we simply gather and worship. He intended the church to be a place where we gather and worship so that we would scatter and worship in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in our workplaces, and be like Daniel. We're just so good at what we do because we're doing it as unto the Lord, not for an earthly boss. And as we do it as unto the Lord, people start to notice. And they, they, they start to ask questions like, can you give me a reason for the hope that lies within you? The thing that makes you different? We have a lady who's working in a hospital in one of the most closed countries in the world. A place where you're not allowed to share your faith. A place where Islam is the, is the religion. She went there and she said, Andrea, I just did my job as unto the Lord. And people started to notice. And they, would, and they would, even the bosses started to notice. And they said, look, can you train other people to do what you're doing? And so she started to train the other nurses to do what she did. And then they said, wow, you're doing such a good job at that. Can you train all of our medical staff? And she did. And it got to the place where she was reporting directly to the CEO because she was such a value to the company, the, 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 the hospital. She was such a value to them that they wanted her to report directly to that. And she trained the whole hospital staff. And you know what? As a result of that, they won't touch her. And she shares her faith on a regular basis with those in the hospital. Why? Because she does so well at her job because she's doing it unto the Lord. These were the good works that God had prepared in advance for us to do, for her to do. She was a nurse. She was equipped as a nurse. She was passionate about being a nurse. So she was going to be the best nurse that she could possibly be as unto the Lord to give him glory. And as a result, people went, wow. Tell me why. And she got to share her faith. Who has God made you to be? Is it an engineer? Maybe it's a doctor. Maybe it's a dentist. What, what's, what has God put in you already? And how are you going to be the best at that? Not because you'll get a better retirement package. Maybe you'll get that. But do it and seek the kingdom first. And all those things will be added on to you. Don't chase the add-ons. Seek the kingdom. And be the best at what God has made you to be in this community, but maybe God's asking some of you to go to Saudi Arabia, some of these places, and be that. Don't give up what you're doing, but go do that. Get Amen. paid for it. Be sustainable. Be the best at it so that people will say, wow. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Paul says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and do what? Glorify. Glorify your Father which is in heaven.
I pray that this will be a church that truly lives up to its name. Mm. That will embrace everything God has created you to be. Mm. Whatever skill he has given you, whatever ability he has given you, whatever passion he's put in your heart, you will embrace that. And you will do it as unto the Lord in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your community, in your school. And that people will see it. And I know this will happen. They will glorify God. And I pray that some of you will go and consider doing that somewhere in the world where Jesus isn't worshipped. For the glory of God. Amen.